18 to 30. Raise your hand. If you're 18 to 30, let me see you. Raise your hand real high. Let's actually stand up. There we go. Well, no, no, no. The rest of you don't need to sit down. Just everybody stand up and then raise your hand if you're 18 to 30. All right. Come fall, we're going to be taking uh, all the 18 through 30-year-olds through this book called the Purple Book. We're going to do the Purple Book. Purple Book is uh, really an excellent Bible study that has caught fire and gone all throughout the United States and beyond, being, uh, being used everywhere. It, it's just a, a, an easy way to learn the Bible. Everybody's going to have one. We've already got them in stock, and we're going to begin in the fall. Um, that guy's going to be leading worship. Raise your hand, Scott. And how many of you saw him and where'd she go? Melanie, they sent out a wedding card. What do you call it? A what? Save the date. There you are. Notice how she came right back out when she heard me. Well, they're, they're engaged. Anyway, uh, so you'll be seeing them together more and more. And, and that made her so happy to come out and lay hold of that. But anyway, he's going to be leading worship. We're going to have a great teacher. And we're going to go through this together because we're going to reach the 18 to 30-year-olds. That's one of the reasons we're doing upstairs. We're making room. And so I want all of you 18 to 30-year-olds to begin to pray with us. Would you do that? If you'll share my burden to reach that age group and pray, would you raise your hand? All right. All right, because listen, we want 50, 100, 150 young adults, that's what kind of what you call them, young adults, 18 to 30, ministered to, being reached, and, and many more say we're going we're gonna to invade a couple of college campuses in the fall, and we're going to take the Purple Book, and we're going to challenge these students to go through this with us. So, uh, Amy, I, I wish I was the teacher. I'm not, but I wish I was, because this is really fun, easy. So, why don't you see that? And that's where we're headed in the fall, one of the directions we're going, all right? How many of you are ready for some questions tonight? All right, more than that, how many are ready for some answers? All right, let's, let's stand together and we're going to pray. And take, the, you know, I, I don't mean to make you uncomfortable, but take the hand of your neighbor. And let's just, let's just pray for a second here. And let's, let's just begin by saying, Lord, we ask you to touch the 18 to 13-year-olds, 30-year-olds, Lord, give us that young adult group. Lord, they're, they're on the campuses. They're lost. They're confused. They're in a, they're in a society that is, that is collapsing around them. So many unanswered questions, so much stress, and they need Jesus so badly. And so, Lord, we agree together that that age group is going to be reached this fall. That you're going to give us the wisdom to do it, the wherewithal to do it, the prayer warriors to do it, the grace to do it, and you're going to give us good success. And Lord, we pray that tonight as we get into your word that you will speak to us, minister to us, and Lord, build us up in the faith and thank you for answering the questions of life through the eternal word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn your neighbor and tell them you're going to be blessed tonight. Amen. Now, how many of you were here, were not here last weekend? I, I preached on, there's a pony in here somewhere. Somebody came by yesterday and left a package. <laughs> left a wrap package. And they came and uh, just left it here and it was for me. And so Valerie uh, got it to me. And I opened it and on the inside was a card. And it said there's a pony in here somewhere. <laughs> really, it did. So, you never know what you're going to run into. I, you know, you never know if it's going to be a joke or what. But I pulled the paper back, and here's this little pony. I, I meant to bring it. I was kicking myself that I forgot. And it said, squeeze my stomach. So I did, and it sounded like it was galloping. And they said, we were visitors last weekend. And we walked in, and that message so spoke to us that we went out and got you a pony. <laughs> Isn't that something? <laughs> oh, my. So, 
Anyway, here we go. This is, this is six weeks now, questions, and I'm going to go ahead and finish the summer with it because they keep coming in, and they're getting better, and we're dealing with some humdinger questions tonight. So first and foremost, I've had so many people ask me about this. Now, remember, um, I'm going to share the Word of God. I'm, just going to, I'm going to show you what the Scriptures say. If it makes you mad or if it bothers you, don't get mad at me. Uh, Go home and read the Bible. And I'm giving you the, my best answer based on what I've studied in the Scriptures. This is a big one. Uh, and if you've never asked this question, you will hear about it somewhere down the road. It's kind of a hot topic out there. Who are the Nephilim in the Bible? Were they giants? Now, here's the answer. Your question concerns Bible verses that are well known to many who study God's Word. How many have ever heard of the Nephilim? Okay, most of you. All right. The Nephilim did indeed exist before Noah's flood. They were giants. Now, these giants were brought into the world when the earth was experiencing a population explosion. I find one of the most fascinating times in history to be that time before the great flood. Genesis 6. You read all about it in Genesis 6. Without Genesis 6, we would know basically nothing about that time period. But Genesis 6 lays out a lot of things for us, and it's the days of Noah. And remember, Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Now, we ought to really listen to that, because whatever the characteristics were of the days of Noah, whatever was going on, Jesus said, you're going to see a duplicate in the days before I return. You're going to see a duplicate in the last of the last days. So that's this time period. These giants were in the days of Noah. Now, Scripture records, let's look at it, Genesis 6, 4, in those days and even later, there were giants, Nephilim, on the earth. And they were the great heroes and famous men of long ago. Now, the time period from Adam's creation which was around 3984 B.C., four, roughly 4,000 years before Christ. If you follow the chronology of the Bible, that's where it's going to lead you to. 4,000 years or so before Christ, Adam was created. To just before the waters covered the globe, which was about 2,300 years before Christ, is about 1,650 years. So you had mankind had 1,650 years to multiply. And what did God say to Adam and Eve? Multiply and replenish the earth, fill the earth. And, man, they did it. Because watch this. Conservative estimates placed the population of the world during that time at about a billion people. You didn't know that, did you? A billion people before the flood. So... You know, what a catastrophe that when the flood happened, a billion people were taken out. A billion people. Now, the Bible records in the first two verses of Genesis 6, watch carefully. It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Now, here's the million-dollar question. Who were the sons of God? See that verse? That the sons of God looked at the daughters of men. So here's what the great, big, huge question is, and it's caused so much controversy. Who were the sons of God who married women and produced these giants, these Nephilim? Some believe that they were demons. And let me just go right into that theory. Nobody knows for sure, but I'm going to show you what I think is probably the better answer tonight. But some believe that the sons of God were demon spirits, fallen angels, who took the form of human flesh so that they could produce giants. Now, you could go into a Christian bookstore and find whole books on this, and, and, and I guarantee you there are people in here right now who believe that. And since I'm going to probably teach a little bit against that, that's where you need to not get mad at me. <laughs> but a lot of people believe this. And you know what? 
good people believe this. Uh, uh, people who really feel like, and the, the students of the Bible, this is, this is the fact that it was demon spirits, which I find to be an extremely creepy idea. Bizarre. Okay. But that's the theory. But this theory doesn't make any sense to me. Now, let me tell you why, and then you can chew the meat and spit out the bones. If you don't agree with me, that's okay. We're all still saved. Okay? But watch this now. First, here's why I don't believe that demon spirits invaded earth and impregnated women. I don't believe that. Now, here's why. First, no place in the Bible where God calls demons his sons. Nowhere. It says the sons of God looked at the daughters of men that they were beautiful. Well, that's demon spirits. Then the Holy Ghost who gave us the word, who inspired the word, moved the writer to call demons sons of God. But it gets way worse. Watch now. Now, here's what some people point to. They go to, for instance, Job 1 and verse 6, which says, Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Who came? The sons of God. Now, watch this. And Satan also came among them. Now, what those who believe the theory of the demons, what they point to is they say, See, the sons of God and Satan approached God, and so there you have it. Though they were called sons of God, they were demons. But wait a minute. Satan actually slipped in along with the righteous angels who were presenting themselves to God because we're not told in that verse that the sons of God were also demons. We're told the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan slipped in among them. And remember what he said. He challenged Job and Job's walk. And, and, he, and you got to know that this happens because not only did Satan come and say, look, if, if you took away everything you've given him, he will curse you. He attacked Job's character, Job's walk, Job's integrity, Job's faith. He attacked everything about Job. And Job, uh, or God allowed the devil, don't ask me why, I don't know. But he allowed the devil to strike Job and take away everything that he had except for his life. That's one of those mysteries in the Bible. I don't know. But Satan approached God. Now, we know that he did the same thing with Peter. Because Jesus said, Simon, Simon, Satan has requested to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And when you have been restored, you will go and strengthen the brethren. So here's Jesus who had an inside track. He knew of the activity of the devil. And, and he said, Peter, the, the devil has gone and, and asked God to sift you. And that's a whole message in and of itself, what sifting is and what all Simon Peter went through. But the bottom line is, this happens. The, 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 I preached a message once. Now, hang on. I called it, Who in Hell Are You? And boy, did I have a crowd that Sunday. But I didn't say, notice, I didn't say, Who in thee are you? I said, Who in hell are you? In other words, does, does hell even know that you're alive? Is hell worried about you? Let's put it another way. Hell was worried about Job, and hell was worried about Simon Peter. So it's a good question to ask yourself. <laughs> Who in hell? And remember when, the, when, the, when uh, uh, the seven sons of Sceva went to cast the, the demons out of, of the man, and the demons spoke through this demon-possessed individual and said, Paul I know, and Jesus I know. But who are you? So see, everything I said was biblical. Amen. It's a good question to ask. Is hell even worried about me? Hell ought to be worried about every single person in this room. Walking with Jesus and doing what we ought to do. You walk with God, get filled with the Holy Spirit, witness, live for Him, and bear fruit, and believe me, hell knows about you. All right, now, but in this text with Job, Job 1, verse 6, it does not say that the sons of God were demon spirits. Now, let me give you a couple of other translations other than the King James to show you this. The NIV says, one day, who came to present themselves? The angels. 
before the Lord. And then Satan came with them. Now here's another translation, the New Living Translation. One day, the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord. And the accuser, Satan, slipped in with them. So this whole idea of saying, well, see, the sons of God were demon spirits in Job. No, they were not. They were righteous angels, the heavenly court, righteous beings. So that kind of blows that out of the water. Second, the Bible says the sons of God took wives for themselves. Now, follow carefully the word here. Meaning they were married, and together they produced giant children. So let's extrapolate this theory now. Let's take it on out to its final conclusion. Think with me a minute. If, if it was demon spirits, then are you telling me these women married demons and lived their lives out with them? How does that work? How does that work? Now, there are people who say they married a demon. But that's another topic as well. I think you can marry somebody with demons in them. But hey, we're being told by this theory that, that they married demons, that it was demons put on, took on human form and impregnated these women. And therefore, they gave birth to these giant, wicked, evil Nephilim. But for me, logically, looking at the word, I, can't, I just cannot come up with that. I can't go there. Uh, let me give you some more reasons. It does not say that these women were raped or otherwise violated sexually, like you hear in a lot of occult practices and whatnot. That any of these things happened before they were married, and they had these children, these giants out of wedlock. No, it says they were married. Now, marriage, folks, is an institution God began all the way back in Eden. Marriage was God's idea. Okay? And... Once he set it in motion, he didn't change it. Jesus quoted Moses and said, Have you not read that he created them male and female? And a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife? And the two shall become one flesh? Male and female? And that's a very binding thing in heaven. I mean, God looked at marriage and said, it is good. He didn't say, it's okay, I'm going to make it better. He said, it's good. So there's not even a hint in Scripture that God ever spoke about or conducted or approved of angelic beings somehow marrying humans. I, it just, you have to just look at what you're saying when you teach this. To go with the demon theory, you'd have to say that earthly women married demon spirits and lived out their whole lives with them. That they took on human form. And that's like something out of Hollywood. It didn't happen. I don't believe it happened. Okay? Now, third, Jesus tells us something very interesting about angels that relates to the, the Nephilim. One day the self-righteous Sadducees came to Jesus with a question that they hoped uh, they could trap him in. And they asked if a husband, or if a woman who had seven husbands, now this is Liz Taylor. You know, let's just say if Liz Taylor, and no children from any of them, whose wife would she be at the resurrection of the dead? It's like, okay, you're resurrected, here comes Liz, and here comes seven men. Which one do I say hello to first? And, and what is my relationship going to be with these seven men, all to whom I was married? They thought they were trapping Jesus. Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, seeing right through it, it was Sadducees don't even believe in a resurrection, answered them with the following. For when the dead rise to life, they will be like the angels in heaven and will not marry. So angels don't get married. Let me tell you further. Angels are asexual. They are asexual. So to say that demon spirits took on the form of men and impregnated these women and they had these wicked, evil Nephilim giants and that's where they came from, for me, it, that, that, that theory is, is just full of holes. 
I can't go there. I can't go there logically. can't go there scripturally. Jesus tells us clearly those who attain the resurrection of life will not marry. There's not going to be any marriage in heaven. I had a woman ask me a question. It was one of the questions, and I thought I'd probably just hit it with, with this one, put it in with it. Um, I love my husband so much, I really want to be with him in heaven. What will be our relationship? Well, I can answer that. I believe you'll know them, but you will not be married in heaven. We're married to Jesus. Things change drastically in heaven. Well, that breaks my heart, but trust me, it won't. When you see Jesus, you're going to forget all about Bob. Okay? Seriously. Angelic beings are composed of spirit, and they're unable to reproduce. Only human beings in the flesh have the gift of marriage and procreation. The Bible informs us in places other than Genesis who God considers to be his sons. We're called sons of God in John 1, 12, Romans 8, 14, 1 John 3, 2, and many other places. Only those who exist with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit are truly God's sons. Even people who aren't Christians aren't God's sons. You're only a son of God or a daughter of God, a born-again child of God, if you come to Christ. Until that happens, you're not. Okay? The only option that makes sense is that the sons who married the daughters of men, the sons of God who married the daughters of men, that ultimately produced the giants were righteous men, the lineage of righteous Seth. Makes way more sense to me. At least these guys were human beings who foolishly married worldly women. You had two lineages. You had the lineage of Seth and the lineage of Cain. The lineage of Cain was evil, wicked. All, all the Philistines, uh, uh, Edomites, all that you see in the Bible, the, the, the wicked uh, tribes and, and peoples that you see manifested later in the Old Testament, all came from, through Cain. But the line of Seth is the line that Jesus came through. So the righteous line is called the righteous line of Seth. And they foolishly married worldly women. You say, well, where do you get that? Right here. Genesis 6, verse 2. Look what it says. They took wives for themselves, whomever who chose. They chose. So you don't notice them saying, oh, God, is this the one for me? You don't see them saying, is this a, a godly woman? Is this a right woman? Is this, is this something that you can bless? Uh-uh. You know what they were walking in? The lust of the eyes. I can show you this. Instead of relying on God to guide their marital decisions... Righteous men in the line of Seth, before the flood, decided to pick mates they lusted after. They became, as the Apostle Paul states, unequally yoked with unbelieving women who were not of the lineage of Seth. They were of the lineage of Cain. And these righteous men chose them. Foolishly. So in conclusion, according to the Bible... Giants known as the Nephilim did exist before the flood. They died out when the deluge covered the earth, and they were not saved on Noah's ark, along with a billion people. Wow. That just that blows my mind. A billion people drowned in that flood. All right, we're moving to another question. Everybody breathe deep. I can, I can see I tired you out just on that one. All right, now let's look. Here's a question. Who's the queen of heaven mentioned in Jeremiah 7.18? Well, let's read Jeremiah 7.18. The children gather wood. This is Jeremiah, or God talking through Jeremiah. This is what God was observing. The children gather wood, the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for who? The queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods that they may provoke me to anger. Now, this is God observing Judah. And, and here is what Judah, the, the, the tribe of Judah, the nation of Judah was doing. They were worshiping other gods. They had gone polytheistic. They had many, many different gods. They had accepted the gods 
of the very people that God raised them up to destroy because of their idolatry, instead of destroying them along with their idols, they became victims and worshipers of the idols that brought judgment on the people they were sent to destroy. Wow. You know, I got to tell you, I'm going through uh, the Old Testament um, and the people of Israel. I got to tell you, so often I'm amazed at how these people would see the hand of God, see the deliverance of God, see the glory of God, see God's hand moving. He would deliver them. He would bless them. He would favor them. And they would turn right around and bring to themselves idols. They would sacrifice their children in the fire to Molech. They would, they would worship many different gods. They would reject the God who had blessed them in the first place. And I decided, I wrote it in my Bible yesterday morning, it was almost like a national pathology. They just had this incredible pull to idols. And here they were now. God's looking down on them. This is prior to the Babylonian captivity. This is one of the reasons they were taken away into captivity in chains because they were worshiping this queen of heaven and they had the whole family involved. Did you notice that? The whole family was involved. You got the the fathers making the fire. You got the women kneading the dough. And in another place, and, and the children were gathering the wood. So the whole family was involved in worshiping gods that couldn't speak, hear, help, move, act, that were dead, that were not real whole family was involved. It was a family affair. And man, did it provoke God to anger. Now the phrase, the queen of heaven, appears in the Bible only twice, and it's both times in Jeremiah. The first incident is in connection with the things the Israelites were doing that provoked God to anger. Entire families were involved, as I just said, children gathering the wood, men using it to build altars, to worship these false gods. The women would, would make the, these, um, these cakes sometimes that were in the shape of the moon because the moon was involved also in this worship with the queen of heaven. And the, so God was watching the whole family order collapse as whole families fell into deception and lost the blessing of God. I wonder what God sees when he looks down on America now, on America's families, what does he see? Is there an idol in every home? Oh, yeah, it, it's a box, and all the furniture is turned towards it. <laughs> and boy, do you have to be selective what you let come through that thing. Oh, my. I, I stick with forensic files. Any of the, the sitcoms, I cannot stomach. Well, that's another message. But, but here you got total family collapse into idolatry. Now, the title, Queen of Heaven, refers to Ishtar, an Assyrian and a Babylonian goddess, also called Ashtoreth and Astarte. And uh, she was thought to be the wife of the false god Baal. And Baalism was the single, singular plague on Israel. That's why Elijah and his ministry was raised up to wipe out Baalism, Jehu. What Elijah didn't finish, Jehu did finish. And Baalism was the scourge of Israel. It, it caused the whole nation to slide into the pit. And so she was considered to be the, the wife of Baal, the queen of heaven. So, and Molech, you see, was also another name for Baal, and it was Molech that they were literally placing their living children into the red-hot arms of Molech, sacrificing to a God that didn't exist. And God said in Jeremiah, this never came into my heart, into my mind. This is totally foreign to me. And for this reason, among a few others, I'm bringing judgment on you for killing your children. The motivation of women to worship Ashtoreth stemmed from her reputation as a fertility goddess. And as the bearing of children was greatly desired among women of that era, you know, if you didn't have, you were barren, it was a big strike against you. Uh, women wanted to have children, so they, they would worship the queen of heaven, believing that since she was the fertility god, it, was, it would greater enhance the woman's possibilities of having children. 
So they would worship the queen of heaven, Ashtoreth. And it, it swept through Israel and Judah. And um, now the second reference to the queen of heaven is found in Jeremiah 44, where Jeremiah is giving the people the word of the Lord, which God had spoken to him. And he reminds the people that their disobedience and idolatry has caused the Lord to be very angry with them and to punish them with calamity. When a nation experiences calamity after a calamity, you know what the Bible would say? God is judging. And, and one thing that's standing out to me in my own devotional is, if you had a king that walked with God and he led the people to walk with God, it says God gave that land and that nation peace all around. But if there was a wicked king and he led the people away and, and perverted them and corrupted them, then God released enemies on them and catastrophes and disasters one after another. It happened every single time. So Jeremiah is, spent his whole adult life warning Judah, you better turn, you better turn, you better turn. And here's one of the things you're doing wrong, this worship of the queen of heaven is bringing the wrath of God on you. They reply, and you can read about this in Jeremiah, they reply to Jeremiah, we have no intention of giving up our worship of idols or the worship of the queen of heaven. We're not about to do it. Promising to continue, they said, we're going to pour out drink offerings to her, and we're going to go so far as to credit her with the peace and prosperity that we once enjoyed because of God's grace and mercy. We're not only, we're not only going to worship her, but we're going to credit a God that doesn't exist with the blessing that we had so long ago. And we, we shake our heads and we go, wow, how could they do that? What are we doing now? In America, we're crediting everything but God for the incredible nation that he gave us. So it's unclear where the idea that Ashereth could be worshipped alongside Jehovah originated, but that was the idea they believed. Well, I worship Jehovah, but I'm going to worship the queen of heaven too. And so it's easy to see how the blending of paganism that exalts a goddess with the worship of the true king of heaven, Jehovah, can lead to the combining of God and Ashtoreth. But here's the idea of the queen of heaven as the consort or paramour of the king of heaven is idolatrous and unbiblical. And the day came and Jeremiah saw it happen. He was there when the Babylonians swept in, got the children, the mothers, the dads, the political leadership, the king, his servants, chained them, starved them, took them into subservience, marched them off to a strange land where they served Babylon for 70 years and lost everything. Lost everything. The beautiful temple, the splendid, magnificent, wonder of the world temple Solomon had built 400 years before. It made it for four centuries, but when the Babylonians swept in, they destroyed it completely. They lost everything. Part of their problem was they insisted on worshiping something that was not the real God. Now, we tend to think of idolatry as they got some little wooden thing here and it's placed on your bedside table or something and you're worshiping some little wooden figurine. But an idol is anything you put in the place of God. You can, it can be visible, it can be invisible. Money, a person, a place, a thing. Idolatry is anything that takes first place in your life over God. It can be you. Next question. You know, it's hard going from, what, I feel like I'm shifting gears here in a major way, going from first to fourth and, you know, because these are questions that are strong. But here's, here's the next one. Are there various levels or degrees in heaven and hell? That's a good question. Now, here's the answer. Many have believed throughout the centuries, particularly medieval times, that hell consisted of various levels. The deepest level is where the worst of the worst, Charles Manson and all the rest, go. That's what they believed. The poet Dante wrote his famous Inferno, Dante's Inferno. If you ever read that thing, what an imagination he had. 
uh, and the inferno. I just want to give you this, just to give you an idea of, of the way they thought, especially in medieval times. And he was in the uh, Catholic Church. So Dante, brilliant guy, brilliant poet, but he depicted in the inferno nine levels or circles of hell, each reserved for particular sins. And let me just show you a couple of them. Circle one was called Limbo. And it's re- it, it was uh, um, inhabited by virtuous non-Christians and unbaptized pagans who are punished with eternity in an inferior form of heaven. In other words, these people just barely didn't make it. So they got to go on level one. So I guess when you, you know, when you bury some of these folks, you say, well, uh, you know, they never did get baptized, but praise God that at least they're, they're going to be in level one, which is the next best thing to heaven. And they believed this back then. But then it gets worse. Circle two is for the lustful. And these are punished by being blown violently back and forth by strong winds, preventing them from ever finding peace and rest. You ought to read it. You ought to just go, go get it and read it. Circle three is for the gluttonous. Sinners in this circle of hell are punished by being forced to lie in a vile slush. Doesn't that sound great? That is produced by never-ending icy rain. Level three. So, you know, I can only imagine what funerals were like. You know, you're burying somebody and they had a food problem. They're going down to level three. The vile slush symbolizes personal degradation of one who overindulges in food, drink, and other worldly pleasures. So all Americans would be in level three. Okay. Okay. This is just Dante's Inferno. Now, you get the idea. Just so you'll know, circle nine, the worst one, the worst of the worst is reserved for those who committed treachery and betrayal. How many of you have ever been betrayed? How many of you have been betrayed say, I'd love to put them in circle nine, <laughs> right? This circle nine, the deepest of the deep place of hell. And they're frozen in an icy lake for eternity. And Dante showed Judas Iscariot being there, the betrayer of Jesus. Now, I'm not teaching this as fact. I'm just giving you an idea of the way people used to think that there were these levels. But guess what? While this picture of hell came from the vivid imagination of a medieval poet, the Bible does allude to varying degrees of punishment and sins. Did you know that? For instance, there will be more tolerance for certain sins. Let me prove it to you. Jesus said, and you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom that occurred in you, Sodom would be remaining to this day. What is Jesus saying? If Sodom had seen what you've seen, Capernaum, performed in you by me, Sodom would have repented. But Sodom had no Bible. Now, what did Jesus go on to say? Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more what? Tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. That's out of the mouth of Jesus. You don't get any better than that. Now, there's another difference in hell. There will be greater punishment for some sins. Matthew 23, verse 14, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers, therefore you will receive greater what? Now look what Jesus is saying. You hypocrite, you knew the Word of God, and all you're doing is praying so you can be heard and so you can show off. He said you're going to get a greater condemnation than others. So Jesus was, was laying it down. There are some sins worse than others that bring greater punishment. You know, we hear people say, I hear people say all the time on the crime shows I watch. I watch real ones, not Hollywood ones, where there was a real criminal, a real felon, a real killer who got really caught. And you'll see the family sometimes facing them in court. And they will say, there's a special place for you in hell. Now, I personally believe that God planted his word in our hearts. 
the commandments. We know, even before we're saved, that something is right or wrong and so forth. I think there's an inner knowing that there is going to be a judgment. And that's why somebody in a moment of anger can say something like that. How do they know? How do they know there's going to be a special place in hell? How do they know that? Because we have, a, we have a sense of justice and righteousness and right and wrong and judgment planted in us. So the truth comes out in emotional moments. So, and Jesus confirms it. For some people, there is going to be a greater condemnation. If you're in Jesus, you don't need to worry about any of this. And some sins are considered greater than others. Look what John 19.11 says. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has what? The greater sin. Who's the he? Judas. He's got the greater sin. Jesus specifically attributes Judah's betrayal as a greater sin than Pontius Pilate's. Jesus said that. So, wow, there, there are varying degrees of punishment and judgment. And there are some things worse than others. As for rewards in heaven, going to the flip side and the positive note, yes, there's going to be varying degrees of reward. The confusion usually comes from people confusing the difference between salvation and rewards. And follow me very carefully. Many Christians never get past this, never get this revelation. Salvation is a free gift. Nothing we do earns salvation. But rewards are earned by our works after we are saved. Jesus said, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroys and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't corrupt and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there's where your heart is going to be. What is Jesus saying to us? That we literally have the ability. We can't take anything with us, but we can send it ahead. We can send rewards ahead. If I can lay up treasures for myself in heaven, then that tells me there are rewards for living right, doing right, obeying the Lord. Works don't save me, but works attest to the fact that I've been saved. James said, you show me your faith without works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Real faith has feet. Real faith is a verb. When you're really saved, you will naturally move into good works that attest to the fact you've been saved. That's where we're talking about rewards. Salvation is a present reality, but our rewards are going to be given in the future in heaven. They will be given at the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, some of you have heard that called the Bema. That's the, the Greek, the Bema. The Bema is the judgment seat of Christ when our works, not our sins, but our works will be tested and judged. Catch this, church. This is why we're always encouraging people to get involved in good works for the glory of the Lord. Jesus said, let your light so shine in heaven that they may see your good works and glorify your Father that is in heaven. Jesus preached and taught good works. That's how we let our light shine. Okay? That's what people see. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Look at Romans 14, 10. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God, and each one of us will give an account of himself to God. We won't give an account of our sins because they're gone. But here's what we'll give an account for. What did you do with your gifting, your talent, your calling, your God-given opportunities? Did you minister to others, witness to others? Did you pray? Did you do anything that released the knowledge and the glory of the Lord into the earth? Were you involved in anything that ministered Jesus to other people? You know, I could never do this church without the myriad of people that help us. And I can just point back to the office back there. There are many people that work in that office. They, they push pencils. and They're on the computers all day long. They're not up here in the pulpit. They're not up here preaching. They're not seen by all of you. But you know what? 
if they didn't do what they did, I can't do what I do. And you can't hear what you hear. And you can't be blessed like you're blessed. So right down to the greeter who says hello to somebody in the parking lot. And it's a visitor. And somebody walks up to them with a big smile. says, welcome to Turning Point. Do you know that that's the first link? Do you know that if they were to go up to them and say, man, uh, I don't know if I'm glad to see you today or not. Can't you dress better than you dressed? Uh, They're never going to listen to me. The chain is only as strong as the weakest link. So from the greeter to the usher to the office ladies and the office personnel to everybody involved right up to this, without everyone, this church wouldn't function. And the pencil pusher is going to get a reward as much as me for preaching the Word. Are you with me? Because what they're doing is a good work. It's for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 3 describes what what will happen at the Bema. God is going to test our works by the fire of motive. What was your motive? If we did things in His strength and for His glory, they will pass through the refining fire as gold, silver, and precious stones. And you get a reward. But if we did things in our own flesh and for the glory of our earthly payoff, which the Pharisees and Sadducees did, praying to be heard of men, seen of men, all that. We, we, we got our strokes on the earth when somebody said, ooh, aren't they spiritual? Because we were praying to be seen and heard of men. As soon as somebody says, oh, you are so spiritual, you are such an incredible prayer, Jesus said, you just got your reward, lap it up, because that's all you're getting. But if you're praying, hidden away in the prayer closet, you shut the door, and you get alone with God, and your Father in secret hears you, It says he'll openly reward you, and you get a reward in heaven for praying with the right motive. This is good stuff. Okay? Those works are referred to as the bad works that are just going to be burned up, wood, hay, and stubble. If you did it all for you, for your glory, and that was your motive, it's all going to burn up. And you are saved, but by the skin of your chinny-chin-chin. There are various kinds of rewards. The Bible doesn't give a lot of information. Matthew talks about a prophet's reward, a righteous man's reward, a disciple's reward. I think, I've, I think there's like eight crowns revealed in the Bible that different people are going to get for what they did on earth, their good works. There's the martyr's crown. There's the soul winner's crown. There's all these various crowns, crown of righteousness. Crowns symbolize dominion and authority over people. And sure enough, God's rewards include dominion and authority. In Revelations we read, He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. So no wonder God calls us to be faithful and persevering all the way to the end. The longer we serve him, the greater our reward. That's why I hope to be preaching when I'm 80. Because I want rewards. And what are we going to do with those crowns? It says we're going to cast them at his feet and just worship him. But yes, there are various rewards in heaven. Now, is there a Harlem? No. Is there a Beverly Hills Drive? No. But there's various rewards. Okay? Here's the last one. This is a tough one. My 95-year-old grandmother, who was suffering from dementia, has been placed in hospice and is having food withheld to accelerate her death. Then here's the question. Is euthanasia ever right? All right. You need to know euthanasia is galloping our way. Let me just answer this. The Bible does not specifically mention euthanasia. That word's not in there. But it does address issues that are closely related to it. Now, Euthanasia is known by these terms. This is what the liberal left will call them. Uh, Mercy killing. Okay. Uh, Assisted suicide. Remember Kevorkian? Dr. Kevorkian? Wasn't he a creepy person? But but the, the left, the left, the liberal left are excellent at rephrasing things 
to give a different meaning and ring to them. Okay? And, and, it's, and, and that's what Marxism and socialism has, socialism has always done. And the liberal left are Marxist and socialistic. And they're, they've got a great foothold in our country right now. And one of the things they'll do is they'll take something wicked and they'll rephrase it or redefine it so that it doesn't mean that anymore. So instead of, I killed this person who was sick, it was a mercy killing or assisted suicide. It's the act of assisting someone in his or her own death who might be terminally ill, suffering, in great pain. That's what it is. That's what euthanasia is. The goal of the assisted suicide is to prevent the continuation of pain. Well, they're in so much pain, we just need to send them home. So we're, we're going we're to go ahead and assist them in, in dying. Now, the Bible tells us that we're not to murder. You know when the Bible says, thou shalt not kill, one of the Ten Commandments? Listen, the Hebrew is, thou shalt not murder. It's not thou shalt not kill. Murder is wrong, but killing isn't. What do you mean, Pastor Jeff? What about capital punishment? That's not murder. That's killing. Murder is always wrong. It says, thou shalt not murder is the Hebrew. So technically speaking, if a nation said that euthanasia was legal, then on a human level, level it would not be murder. We, we said abortion is legal. But I'm of the strong 110% conviction that abortion is murder. And I think it's a loathsome paganistic practice. And if America were to survive 100 years, we would look back on the days of abortion like we look back right now on the days of slavery. We look back and we say, that was so wrong. But if you'd gone back to the 1800s, you could have gone to half the nation. Half the nation would have said, oh, no, it's not wrong at all. It's right. But now, not so. We look back and say, oh, that was an atrocity. That was so wrong. If we were to live another hundred years, exist another hundred years, I believe we look back on the days of abortion as a tragic, dark blotch on America. That's my humble opinion, but I get it from the Bible. Where do you get yours? Now, let me just move on. As societies often legislate moral issues in contradiction to the Bible, just because a society might say that euthanasia is good doesn't mean that it's good. We're to obey God rather than men, it says in Acts 5. We're made in the image of God, and it's the Lord God who gives us life and who has numbered our days. Say with me, God's numbered my days. That's what the Bible tells us. You know what that means? He knows exactly when you're going to die because he's numbered your days. David said, my times are in your hand. This means that God is the sovereign Lord who determines the day that we die. That's his business. Therefore, guess what, church? Here's my position. We're not to usurp God's authority. In the book of Job, when Job was under, oh man, this guy, you talk about somebody suffering. You talk about somebody clearly terminal. Job was. And his wife said to him, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and kick it in. You know what she was telling him to do? End it. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speak. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. His wife wanted him to kill himself. End it. Euthanasia. You're suffering. You're not going to come out of this. This is horrible. The pain is unbearable. End it. And he said, you talk like a foolish woman. Basically, Job, Job's wife wanted him to euthanize himself to avoid the pain of his life. But Job refused to do so, and in this he did not sin. Look at Hebrews 9.27. Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die, how often? So you say with me, I'm not coming back. As anything. This is the verse against reincarnation. Uh, you die once, and after that you meet God. The Bible tells us that it is God who appoints people to die. Essentially, assisted suicide is an attempt to deny God his sovereign right 
to appoint who dies when. We must be careful not to take into our own hands the right that is only God's. Now let me continue. And this is our last question, so we're doing good. There's nothing in the Bible that tells us we must do everything we can to keep somebody alive. That's not in the Bible for as long as possible. That's not there. So we're not under obligation to prolong the life of somebody who is suffering. But if somebody is terminally ill and in great pain, we should make the person as comfortable as possible during this process of dying. We should not hasten his death. Instead, we should let death take its natural course. You know what that's doing? That's honoring the God who gave life. A society that departs from God, folks, please hear me. I can take you all through Scripture on this. A society that leaves God first starts killing its children, its babies. Then it always swings to the other end and starts killing its aged. Because if I've got the authority to take a child's life because it's inconvenient, which is 99% of abortions, where's this women's health thing? It has nothing to do with women's health. That's a liberal slogan. 99% of abortions have nothing to do with a woman's health. She's going to be fine if she has that baby. She's not going to, it's fine. It has to do with a woman's convenience. So we wrap it in. Well, it's all about the woman's health and it's a woman's choice. Now, once you go there, you're going to swing to the other side and you're going to go to the other side. If I can be God with little babies, I can be God with aged adults. And I can take them out. Like so many things in the world, when a small compromise is made, many injustices are eventually allowed. And if euthanasia is permitted under the emotional and moral claim that it's best for the individual, what is to prevent the government from eventually stepping in and determining who else needs to be terminated? And can I tell you, that's what they are doing. That's what Obamacare does. Now you say, oh, there you go getting political. It's not political. It's very spiritual. This law, Obamacare, because they're already deciding who lives and who dies. Have you been reading the news? All the people who go to hospitals and doctors and cannot, will not be accepted and are told you don't have the insurance, we don't receive Obamacare, or we can't adjust to what this law is requiring and they're put in the street and they die? That lives are being decided by Washington bureaucrats? taken out of the hands of your doctor. This is the natural evolution of a culture that collapses and forsakes God. We start killing where only God says He can. Now, might the definition of euthanasia be expanded to include those who are suffering from chronic depression? Oh, they're so depressed. Just take them out. They're never going to get better. Or they're not productive in society anymore. Homeless people. You think it's, you think it's far-fetched, church? The day might come the homeless people disappear. And they were, they were taken out, taken off the street, killed. Because they are inconvenient. They're never going to be better. They're not contributing. Of course it can go there. Yes, it can go there. How do you think the Nazis got where they got? How do you think Stalinist Russia got where it got? Good grief. The Chinese wiped out 50 million people. The Russians, 20 million people. The Nazis, 6, 8, 10 million people in the name of convenience. Oh, I could get off on that, but I'm done for the night. We got to ask if the door to killing people in their old age is opened. If it is, can it ever be closed? Think about it. The beginning of life is now open to destruction through abortion, and the end of life is now being considered for destruction as well. And it's like a vice closing in on a, on a culture. And the vice is moving in from both ends. Euthanasia, abortion, here it comes. So people have got to start lifting their voice, and we're going to play a part in that. Can we stand? <clears throat> Amen. 
Well, that was real tonight. That was real stuff. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We pray. Help us just to look at the truth and admit it and deal with it and call it what it is. And help us, Lord, as a church to take a stand and be a voice crying in the wilderness against these things, against these practices. Thank you for helping us to be salt and light. Let's lift our hands to the living God. All of our days are numbered by him. He gave us life. Thank God for another day alive. And let's just sing one stanza. Let's worship. Thank you, Lord.